Let's pray. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand that understanding we may believe we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience seeking your honor and glory in all that we do through christ our lord amen uh, <clears throat> in our pastoral staff we have a good uh, kind of um, relationship between all of us, I think so at least. And among uh, staff members, one of us is a practical joker and uh, playing a lot of jokes. And uh, some people call like uh, Pastor Esther a troll for being such a practical joker. <laughs> but I think that's highly inappropriate to call a pastor a troll, wouldn't you say? <clears throat> I'm just going to pause there for a moment. <laughs> Welcome back, Pastor Esther. <clears throat> um, another practical joker uh, was uh, the writer of the Sherlock Holmes series. We, most of us will know him as uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. And uh, this is an account that George D. Aldrich wrote about um, Dr. Conan Doyle. I heard Dr. Conan Doyle tell a good story during a trip I made to London last winter. He said that at a dinner party he had attended the guests, um, they began discussing the daily discoveries made to the detriment of the people occupying high stations in life and enjoying the confidence of the business world. Dr. Doyle said that it had always been his opinion that there was a skeleton in the closet of every man who had reached the age of 40. You know, this led to a lot of discussion, some of the guests resenting the idea that there was no one who had not in his past something that were better concealed. As a result of the controversy, Dr. Doyle said, it was suggested that his views as to family skeletons be put to the test. So the diners, the people eating, selected a man of their acquaintance whom all knew as an upright Christian gentleman whose word was accepted as quickly as his bond and stood with the highest in every respect. So this is the story. Dr. Doyle sent a telegram to this person and the telegram simply said, all is discovered, flee at once. That's all it said. All is discovered, flee at once. He disappeared the next day and has never been heard from since. And that was uh, a story that he told, and in fact, it made its way in one of his um, novels as well, though not exactly that wording, but that kind of uh, situation was there if you are a fan of Sherlock Holmes. Brings me to, it reminds me of what it says in Proverbs, the wicked flee when no one pursues but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Uh, there is something that we all have that we need out, that we need a saving from, just like we sang when we sang the song Hosanna, just like we heard when we heard the testimony of people in desperate situations and in desperate need. 
and we need something. That something is the gospel. That something is so important that when we started this series, Paul started by saying that you can't add even one iota to this gospel because if you add anything or subtract anything, it's not the gospel anymore. And he starts by saying that, and that is so important. Why? A famous psychiatrist, Carl Menninger, once said that if he could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, if he could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, just four words, your sins are forgiven, if he could convince them of that, he was convinced that 75% of the patients there could walk out the very next day. Paul makes a strong argument in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 it says then, after 14 years. So what happened in 14 years is not the point here. It's this is now connected. Him receiving the gospel and now 14 years he's going back. It's not to confirm that his gospel is true. Mind you, remember in chapter 1 he didn't need approval of man because This is something that he received directly from Christ and that he was a capital A apostle. But what made Paul go back after 14 years? What made Paul go back after 14 years was that the gospel was at stake. The singular, unique form of salvation that could be only attained by this amazing grace The only way a person can stand justified before a righteous judge, that was at stake. It wasn't that Paul didn't think the apostles in Jerusalem didn't have the true gospel. What was in danger was that the apostles may not be true to the gospel. In Acts, we can see that this was the Jerusalem council. And in verse 2, he talks about running in vain. It means that he was going to straighten this matter out because if he didn't, then you would see his ministry not bear fruit, therefore be in vain. If there is something that is not right with how a church or this church lives out the gospel, then it must be corrected. Okay, fine. We have, we know the true gospel. But if we do not live true to the gospel, then it may very well be just as dangerous. Jesus, when he was walking to Jerusalem, he saw a fig tree. And upon seeing that the fig tree had no fruit, he curses it. It has leaves. And if a fig tree had leaves, it means that it should have fruit. But it didn't. The fig tree would always bear fruit first and the leaves would come after. And this tree was full of leaves, but it didn't have fruit. The danger is that if you don't live out the true gospel, then you will be plagued by fruitlessness. But what happened? What happened was even Titus, who was Greek in verse 4, was not forced to be circumcised. Why would Paul have to go out of his way to say that he was a Greek, and second, he was not circumcised. Because in verse 4, 
false brothers or teachers who slipped in, spying on their freedom in Christ, were saying otherwise, adding to the gospel, therefore bringing them back into slavery. What's so wrong about a little circumcision? It's meaningful. It's historical. Are we taking down every statue? If we start here, don't we have to take down every statue, George Washington's and so on? Aren't we giving up our identity? How about we just make all the food that we eat kosher? It's not a big deal. It's small, right? Small deal. Not big deal, small deal. But however small these additions are, the ramifications are enormous. I mean, we could change it so that after every service, we serve food, and it will be so that we will always serve kimchi. Kimchi is good. Kimchi is deemed in CGS as inherently good. So we will always serve it wherever we go or wherever we are. It's not a big deal, right? <clears throat> a few years ago, I had the privilege and honor of going to Africa, a little town called Njombe with some of our folk here. And uh, to go to Njombe in, in the country Tanzania, we had to take a 12-hour bus ride. And this bus ride was brutal um, because it wasn't made for people, I think, taller than 5'5 five, five or 5'6. Five, I'm not sure. And it was brutal. But on our way back to the airport, uh, the pastor's wife, she was so nice to us. She took care of us. She made us meals. And she made us these rice rolls, and she packed it for us. And we were just so happy that we get to eat some good food in this long trip. So we packed it. We put it up. And I remember Ho Young was sitting next to me, and we were on this 12-hour bus ride. And, for, and all of a sudden, the African man in front of me, he starts, like, looking around, and it's like he starts jerking his head, like almost violently. And he starts jerking around. And then after he says some things, I guess, in his native language, which Hoang and I didn't understand, and we were just confused. Like, right, let's try to sleep the 12 hours away. He starts literally just like shaking back and forth. And he's right in front of me. So the, the chair right in front of me is just shaking back and forth. And it's hitting my knees. And my knees are hurting, so I can't sleep. So something's wrong with this guy. And I'm thinking to myself, is this man possessed? <laughs> and um, what Ho Yang and I later realized was when the pastor's wife wrapped the rice rolls for us, she also wrapped some kimchi as well. And the smell started seeping out. And he and I were fine because we're used to that smell. But if you're not used to that smell and all of a sudden you bring that kimchi to Africa and you introduce it in this manner to Africans in a hot bus where there's no circulation or ventilation, you're going to have a man possessed. That's the answer. <laughs> That's what happened. Paul fought to preserve the truth of the gospel. What you think is small and you think it's good, we should keep it. We should just keep it. It's not a big deal, right? It is a big deal. It is a big deal. That's why he fought to preserve the truth of the gospel. It says in verse 5, if it were not fought for, 
to preserve the truth of the gospel, the church may have very well split. And at that early of a stage, if the church split, we could have ended up with two different religions. But because we, they weren't led into slavery, they were still able to enjoy the freedom they had in the truth of the gospel. They did not sway and they didn't give in to these seemingly not so big demands, but the ramifications are huge. What kind of freedom was Paul talking about? Number one, as we kind of mentioned and went over, it's cultural freedom. They didn't have to follow the rules and regulations of Jewish traditions anymore. Look, it doesn't mean traditions are bad, but it does mean that salvation does not depend on you following them. Because it's easier to say, don't eat this, don't drink this, eat this type of food. You can't watch R-rated movies, you can't drink alcohol. It's easier to say these things instead of, you must love your neighbor as Jesus loved you. Why? Because it's easier to say specific things. Our natural response to the heart-cutting message of the gospel is to say, what do we do now? And to love one another as Jesus loved us has endless implications. But if rules and regulations of cultural life got in the way, then imagine all of us having to be Jewish to be saved. The external separation of the church will be far more emphasized than the internal spiritual outworking we have through the Holy Spirit. We would not be free, my friends. We may have the dressings of freedom, but we would be a fig tree full of leaves without any fruit. Number two, it gives us emotional freedom. Our relationship with God is not based on keeping up with moral behaviors, which would lead to an endless loop of insecurity and guilt. Now, if you think about it, does that mean we don't have to follow the Ten Commandments anymore? Because I, Lord, I would love to covet. And when someone drives down the street with that Lambo, I want to say, that idiot, he doesn't deserve the Lambo. I deserve the Lambo. That's what I want to say. Does that mean we don't have to follow the Ten Commandments? And the answer is no. We do. The gospel doesn't free us from moral imperatives. A Christian isn't permitted to lie, cheat, and steal. But Christians are free. How? Christians are free from it becoming our system of salvation. Tim Keller said this, We obey not in the fear and insecurity of hoping to earn our salvation, but in the freedom and security of knowing that we are already saved in Christ. We obey in the freedom of gratitude. The false teachers and Paul both followed and taught people to follow the Ten Commandments, but for completely different reasons and motives. Following out of slavery and an ungracious life is completely different from following out of freedom, a life filled with amazing grace. This is the amazing grace that the other apostles saw in Paul and his companions. It's the fruit of the amazing grace that led the apostles in verse 9 to extend the right hand of fellowship to them. Ultimately, what united the disciples together? The truth of the gospel. 
True unity, then, is bigger and larger and stronger and more lasting than cultural and social affiliations, race, social status, life stage. The lie is that if we are not connected in these outward ways, we cannot be unified. The lie is that because Pastor Eugene is not at my particular life stage, he does not understand me, therefore we cannot be unified. The lie is that I can only get along with people in my life stage. If I am a family uh, with a wife, I can only get along with people like that. If I have a kid, I can only get along. If I'm a college student, I can only get along with college. That's the lie because true unity is bigger stronger, larger, and more lasting than anything that the world would label us with. The result is if we continue to unify ourselves thinking this is unity, this feels good, because we have this common theme and goal, the result is a cultural and spiritual ghetto. You will not be able to recover from this fruitfulness. We Christians continue to talk about unity, unity, unity. And we pray for unity, unity, unity. But what is it that we are really, really, really saying? True unity is gospel unity. A.W. Tozer wrote, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be. Were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for a close, closer fellowship, they would not have this unity. Our unity is rooted in the true gospel. What are the fruits of this unity then? We can see that in this passage that we are now going to be far more connected with those that are in Christ Jesus than with anyone else. We have far more in common with the Christian on the other side of the world like in the Philippines, than we do with someone who isn't a Christian and may even sit right next to us at work. There is no cultural imperative that we impress upon others for us to be united. It means that Titus didn't have to be circumcised. We do not add anything to the gospel. Number two, unity means that we are different but part of the same body. Paul was called to the Gentiles. Peter called to the Jews. We can have different callings. Not everyone is called to be a pastor. Not everyone is called to be an elder. Not everyone is called to be a deacon, but we can be united. Finally, unity would mean that we would look out for each other eagerly. That we would look out for each other eagerly. Verse 10, they asked to remember the poor. And Paul goes, this is the very thing I was eager to do. You know, the Jerusalem churches were living in a state of poverty and they called on the sympathy of the Gentile churches, which, as Paul said, he was eager to do. 
And this is something that I've been really thinking about and what has been impressed upon my heart and spirit. We need to also learn to be unified and grow in this unity that the gospel, the true gospel brings us. But that means that we would also look out for each other eagerly, eagerly. How can we say that we are unified if we don't know or even help those that are in need around us? What if there's someone here right now that is in desperate need? Do you know? Do we know? And are we helping? I think it's good and it's good that we go across the world, we go down South State and help as much as we can. In fact, I'm gonna talk about this a little bit later, but it's good, but I think the wisdom that people are seeing when you go on a flight, our team members go on flights, you all take flights when we go somewhere, they always have this safety kind of um, protocol that they tell everybody and it says when the masks fall, that you should put on yours first before you put on your child. Because people have tried. I love my child so much. They, put, they try to put on the mask on the child and then they actually fail to do both because they're already passed out. So secure your mask and then you can secure the mask of your child as much as you love your child. And I was thinking about the wisdom of that that we even teach on an airplane do we even use that basic wisdom here in this church, in this body? Do we put on the mask for ourselves, help each other before we start helping out everyone else? Otherwise, are we in danger of collapsing? And I think that's something really that we have to meditate on as a church. Are we unified, meaning are we helping each other? Are we seeing the needs of the person next to us, in front of us, behind us, and are we eager to help them? Not just, we'll see. And we judge them even more harshly because we're close. Maybe people aren't sharing about their hard times and their hard situations in our church because we are the ones quicker to judge. It's easier not to judge someone in the Philippines or on, in Texas. We, we don't see them. We only see them a few times a year, one time a year, two weeks in a year. But here we have to see them every week. And it's maybe easier to judge them. It's like, if I give you this $5, I wonder what you're going to do with it. Can you give me a report on that? And then I'll see if you're worthy to receive another $5 from me. Are we that quick to judge? Or are we more quick and eager to help those that are in need as Paul was when he saw the need of the church? And it does also mean we should care for the poor, even if they're not in the church. Absolutely we should, absolutely. Jesus' first sermon was preached on Isaiah and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He didn't just move into a poor neighborhood. He moved in with the poor. He lived, ate, and spent his time with the people in the lowest of social classes. All believers have a responsibility to the poor 
And because the work is extensive and exhaustive, the church set up officers to help in this specific work. We call them deacons. We have to see the wisdom in putting on our own mask before we put on someone else's. We also have to see that they are both important. We put on our own mask so that we can further help putting on the mask on others. How foolish would it be for us to fly out to the ends of the earth to help people while we have starving and destitute people right next to us? The extension of the right hand of fellowship is saying, now we look out for one another. Now your concern is my concern. That is, the on, that is only possible with true unity. Unity founded upon the freedom given through the truth of the gospel. I'll end with this. At a meeting of the American Psychological Association, Jack Lipton, a psychologist at Union College, and R. Scott Bullion, a graduate student at Columbia University, presented their findings on how members of the various sections of 11 major symphony orchestra perceived each other. The percussionists were viewed as insensitive, unintelligent, and hard of hearing, yet fun-loving. I was thinking about it, is this true of our drummer? Anyway, um, the percussionists were viewed as insensitive, unintelligent, hard of hearing, yet fun-loving. String players were seen as arrogant, stuffy, and unathletic. The orchestra members overwhelmingly chose loud as the primary adjective to describe the brass players. Woodwind players seem to be held in the highest esteem, described as quiet and meticulous, though a bit egotistical. Interesting findings, to say the least. With such wide, divergent personalities and perceptions, how can an orchestra ever come together to make such wonderful music? The answer is simple. Regardless of how those musicians view each other, they subordinate their feelings and biases to the leadership of the conductor. Under his guidance, they play beautiful music, and we are not under anyone except Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, what a privilege to be a part of this symphony orchestra. What a privilege to be a part of this church. Together, I pray, unified, we can make beautiful music for the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would be with us and that you would unify us in the truth of the gospel. May we be unified under no other flag lest we are mistaken and add or subtract something from the true gospel. And we ask that you would be with us now and convict us, show us how that we can live out the gospel by loving one another just as you loved us. Let's take this time to continue to reflect and meditate and pray, asking the Lord to convict our very hearts in how we can propel our church 
in this unifying work of proclaiming the gospel and how we can live out the truth of the gospel that has been proclaimed to you today. Let's pray.